Software, chip makers, restaurants, inflation, entertainment, and more. It must be Friday. Motley Fool Money starts now. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best thing. Global Headquarters. This is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Emily Flippin and Jason Moser. Good to see you both. Hey, Good to hey. be here. We've got another big week of earnings. We will dip into the Fool mailbag. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with the big macro. Inflation moving lower helped push the stock market higher. The national average for the price of gas is now below $4 a gallon. And Wednesday's CPI report showed consumer prices up 8.5% in July, which is lower than Wall Street was expecting. So don't look now, Emily, but the NASDAQ is officially in bull market territory. Well, now that you've mentioned it, Chris, you know, inevitably next week we're looking at some horrendous news story that's going to push us back down. But for the time being, we can all head into the weekend probably feeling pretty good about ourselves and the economy. Although I will say, you should take these numbers with a grain of salt. As you mentioned, that national average price for gas falling below $4 a gallon, that has an outsized impact on our inflation metrics. So the majority of the pullback inflation did come from energy, while things like food and housing still remain pretty elevated for the average American consumer. And that is certainly taking its toll on companies. When you look at the businesses that have reported earnings over this past quarter, while these are reflective of what's happened in the past, a ton of them have pulled back guidance on expectations for weakening consumer demand, a worse global economy. So this is a step in the right direction, but we're certainly not out of the woods yet. Well, you know what they say about bear markets, Chris? They're just bull markets waiting to happen, right? And exactly. So now, now we're right back to where we uh, we want to be, uh, at least in the near term. I, I, I agree with Emily. I, I think that this this is a great narrative, a great a great story for the time being. I, I don't think it, it means that the rest of the year is just going to be uh, sunshine and lollipops. I mean, there are still essentially the same things going on in the world right now that have kind of put us in this in this. Position here uh, that we're in right now. Um, so my suspicion is this back half of the year is going to be somewhat volatile. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see next earnings season, kind of how they frame hol- the holiday season coming up. It does still hurt to go to the grocery store. I mean, speaking as someone who goes to the grocery store a lot. You know, I was listening to, I think it might have been yesterday's show, but Tim Byers, maybe it was the day before, but Tim Byers was talking about uh, how before you could go to the store, like he was, he was witnessing this, right? Go to the store, you get two roast chickens for ten dollars, and now he gets that one roast chicken for like nine dollars. I mean, those are real material costs that families are bearing every day. Um, so it is nice to see fuel prices take a little bit of a dip there, but it's worth remembering the consumer is still still in a tough spot in a lot of ways. Well, I'll tell you what I'm watching while inflation. Is this lagging indicator telling us what has happened? I like to look at hiring for businesses because that shows you their expectations for how their business is going to perform in the back half of the year. And we've seen hiring actually increase. And while a lot of this is for service industries, that's the metric I'm looking at to tell okay, are businesses expecting things to get better or are they still expecting things to get worse? Shares of Disney up this week after a third quarter report that featured the following headlines Parks revenue rose 72%. The total 
number of streaming subscribers to Disney+, ESPN+, and Hulu is now greater than the total number of Netflix subscribers. And yes, Jason, the price of those services is going higher. So, what's the biggest news out of Disney for you? I mean, I think you summed it up quite nicely there, Chris. Next story. I mean, no, I, uh, I think the main focus on Disney clearly has been the streaming operations here recently, and that makes sense. It's the newest dynamic. But, but uh, you said it. I mean, don't sleep on the park side of this business. That's a massive driver. That's such a differentiator. And and now it really does look like traffic is coming back. I mean, you look at the performance. Their revenue up over seventy two percent. Operating income more than doubled, right? That really shows how they're able to leverage those massive properties and take advantage of that growing traffic. And they're able to raise prices a little bit along the way there as well. Per capita spending at the domestic parks up 10% versus the third quarter of 2021, up over 40% from fiscal 2019, with occupancy rates at their property at 90% now. At the property hotels, 90%. I mean, those things are not cheap. Uh, I think it's astounding what they've done with the streaming services in such short order. I mean, to have a subscriber base essentially the size of Netflix is now. Granted, they're spreading it across a number of different properties, but you don't don't hate the player, right? I mean, hate the game because that's a big deal. That that's something we've always touted with Disney. The all of that IP, those properties, that makes a big difference. And like the parks, it's a tremendous differentiator for this business. Although they did also take the opportunity to lower their target for 2024. They did pull down that number of how many subscribers they think they're going to have by 2024. In part, I'm assuming because they are raising prices and they're going to they have to expect some drop off. Yeah, part of that also was due to the the Disney Plus Hotstar product over in India. I think it's in making some bids for content over there that leads them to be a little bit more conservative right now. And honestly, I don't think any of us were really surprised by that. We felt like that 230 to 260 goal was was relatively high. They're pulling back on content spend a little bit this year, just going to spend $30 billion now as opposed to $32 billion. Uh, but hey, listen, it's nice to have a company where you can afford to write those kinds of checks. I think they're going to continue to do that for the foreseeable future and ultimately getting the streaming operation to profitability by 2024, which is the goal. Axon Enterprises reported record revenue in the second quarter. They raised full-year guidance and shares of the security tech company up 10% this week. Emily, it's kind of been a challenging past 12 months for Axon, but it seems like they are riding the ship. Well, Axon is in a really interesting position, because what they're doing is still transforming what is largely a hardware-based company to a subscription-style cloud software-based solution. And we saw that succeeding in this recent quarter. And part of the reason why the past year has been troubling for Axon is because they're not consistently profitable. They don't consistently generate a ton of cash flow. So, the market has been hammering these type of growth companies uh, that grow at the sacrifice of their bottom line profits. But this quarter was actually incredible, not just because they beat earnings guidance and revenue guidance, not just because they raised their guidance for the remainder of the year, but because they actually generated positive operating margin, the largest in their history of over 7%. So, they're showing some level of scalability, which is going back to the success of creating these cloud-based solutions. And so, it's no longer just a story about tasers and body cameras, although those are still growing dramatically for this business, but it's a global security suite that serves anybody who's working to protect public interest. Uh, so, that's records management, that's evidence management, um, you know, that's dispatch solutions, all of these things, even including VR training. They're, they're getting a lot of traction in the market here. Uh, Assuming this evolution of the business goes the way they want it to, will one of the results be 
the revenue and the profits become more predictable? Exactly. In fact, you heard management for the first time in a while talking about that pathway to free cash flow and profitability in a really clear way in this most recent quarter, because I think they're seeing that pathway for themselves clearer than ever. Although I will say, this is a company that still wants to heavily invest in their product suite. They want to be the best in class. And CEO Rick Smith is an eccentric CEO, but certainly a visionary in the sense that he wants Axon to be the best player to genuinely reduce the number of lethal deaths that happen from things like police forces. And that's a big mission that's going to require massive capital investment. So they see the pathways to profitability, but they are at no means going to sacrifice long-term growth for the sake of their bottom line. Marketa CEO Jason Gardner said he is stepping down because he is not the best person to lead the payment processor through its next stage of growth. Gardner is going to stay on as chairman of the board. Shares of Marketa down more than 15% this week, Jason. What do you think? I mean, on the on the one hand, I mean, it does seem like it's a strong reaction uh, to a business that that really is performing very well. But by the same token, when you when you get big turnover in executive leadership in such a short span, right? I mean, we saw the CFO take off a little while back. COO was leaving, CEO moving over to the executive chair. I mean, that is a big transition. So it's understandable, uh, at least the concern. But but. Generally, Generally speaking, again, I'm not losing sleep over the report. I mean, let's talk about the numbers here. Total processing volume of $40 billion was up 53% from a year ago. But interestingly, their total payment volume for the three months ending in June of this year, for the three months, exceeded the total payment volume for the 12 months ending June 2020. So these guys are growing. They're putting a lot of money through that network. Uh, net revenue $187 million. That was also up 53% from a year ago. Gross margin hanging in there at 42%. Uh, a big point of focus for investors with this company is their reliance or the relationship with Block, right? Formerly Square. Uh, Block accounted for 69% of net revenue. That was up from 66% in the first quarter, just a tick there. Uh, but but uh, you also look at it, it was 72% a year ago, right? So it is down. Slightly from a year ago. And it's also worth remembering they're going to succeed as Block succeeds, right? When Block succeeds, I mean, that's going to translate to more success for Marketa. So, something to keep an eye on there the total payment volume from customers outside of their top five, right? Block clearly in that top five. Outside of the top five, the total payment volume grew at three times the pace of their top five customers. So, so it looks like they're really winning on all fronts there, which is nice to see. Uh, guiding for third quarter revenue at 37% at the midpoint, uh, they are being a little bit conservative there as new customers are, are being a little bit more deliberate in how they're investing in, in their payment programs there. But I, I mean, you go back to it, the big news there was was uh, the founder and CEO, Jason Gardner, stepping down uh, soon, right? They're going to begin the search for the CEO, and he's going to step over to the uh, executive. Executive chair role, and, and and you said it. I mean, he was very transparent about this on the call. This was because he feels like he doesn't have the skill set to take this business to the next level in what is a very nuanced and complicated industry. So, frankly, in my book, that's the kind of self awareness you want to see from a CEO that has an opportunity uh, to to build a company, really capitalize on such a massive market as this one. After the break, we've got the latest on software, digital advertising, and the business of salad. This isn't one of those other shows. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser and Emily Flippin. Unity Software's second quarter results got overshadowed by the announcement from AppLovin, a gaming software company, in which AppLovin announced an offer to buy Unity Software in an all-stock deal worth $17.5 billion. 
Complicating matters is the fact that Unity had previously announced plans to buy one of AppLovin's competitors, a company called IronSource. Emily, what is going on here? <laughs> Honestly, Chris, your guess is as good as Unity's at this point. Although I will say, after Unity reported what was a pretty disappointing quarter, they must be feeling like the bell of the ball. Because not only is their stock up, but it seems like everybody wants to be Unity's partner. But this deal in particular may be the strangest acquisition slash merger that I've ever seen, which is to say that AppLovin came public with an offer to acquire a company that is effectively larger than them. Um, allow the CEO of that company to take over, allow the board of that company to take over, but to change the name to AppLovin. So, a good way to summarize what's happened is, is AppLovin came to Unity and said, hey, you, you want to change your name? You know, you can keep everything else, but change your name with us. And I think it's a pretty clear answer. As a Unity shareholder myself, and as we've seen from the public reaction to this offer, it's doubtful that Unity moves forward with this, especially since they've already announced that nearly $4.5 billion deal to acquire Iron Source. What is interesting, though, is that Unity has made no public statement about this acquisition to date, other than saying that the board is reviewing the deal. Iron Source did come out and tell shareholders and employees in an internal memo that they think that their offer and their combination will be more competitive. But this whole situation is so odd. And if I had to have my guess as to what's going on behind the scenes, is AppLoving went to Unity and said, hey, what do you think about this deal? Unity probably said, eh, no, we're not interested. And then AppLoving said, well, let's see what everyone else thinks. <laughs> let's take it public. And I think the market has answered that question for AppLoving. I doubt this moves anywhere, but it is certainly helping Unity shareholders this week. Shares of Upstart Holdings up nearly 15% this week after the fintech lending platform got a boost from the better-than-expected news around inflation. Uh, Jason, it seems like that, because after their second quarter report and their conference call, it seemed like a lot of investors are unsure of what strategy Upstart is trying to execute on. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's a fair concern. I think that investors really need to view the reception to this announcement as a tremendous win. I mean, it's a stock that's been taken to the woodshed here for very understandable reasons. And we knew really the results coming in for this quarter because they pre announced it, but the guidance that they offered for the current quarter, I mean, they're targeting. $170 million in revenue versus the expectations of close to $250 million at the time. So that's a significant downward guide. And I think ultimately, this is pretty much summed up with the way that CEO David Gerard started the call. He said, I quote, it may be natural for you to question whether Upstart's AI-powered risk models aren't working as designed, but we're confident this isn't the case. I mean, he's he's starting the call that way, right? They're on the defensive because it's a company that's really lost control of the narrative, so to speak. You look to a quarter ago where they were essentially started behaving more like a bank and taking loans onto their balance sheet. Fast forward to this quarter, they've pivoted back taking action to convert those loans back into cash puts them in a little bit of a desperate seller situation that ultimately impacted their revenue. I don't think the share repurchases are a wise use of capital at all for a business in this state. I mean, it sends a conflicting message, honestly. Uh, it's just a business with a ton of uncertainty right now, and I think they need to make sure they keep their balance sheet in the best possible shape for the unknown. If this ends up working out, it ought to work out well for investors, right? I mean, there's a higher level of risk you're taking on with a company like this. Um, so I think it's also worth remembering this is a little bit more of a, it's a little bit more difficult to understand this business, right? There are a lot of dots to connect uh, with a business like this. So just make sure you feel comfortable connecting those dots in this in this value chain. 
As part of its second quarter earnings announcement, Sweetgreen also lowered its guidance for 2022 and said it's laying off 5% of employees. Shares of the salad chain initially fell more than 20%, but bounced back to finish the week just about even. Emily, they're trying to be the Chipotle of salad, but at the moment, they don't have Chipotle's pricing power. It's certainly challenging for Sweetgreen, especially because Chipotle themselves had an incredible quarter. But what's so odd about this report is that the earnings itself were not bad at all, but they had to lower guidance pretty substantially. And one of the comments management made was that there's a huge drop off in same store sales. During April and May, same store sales growth was 21%. During June and July, it was 7%. It fell off a cliff. So the business is trying to be proactive with guidance. Here, but the big question mark is, you know, do $15 salads really sell as well as you know eight or nine dollar burritos? I'm not sure if I'm a buyer yet, but I will say, just sweet green stock looks a little bit more interesting to me this week. Shares of the Trade Desk up more than 40% this week after strong second quarter results and guidance for the third quarter as well. Uh, Jason, this comes obviously against the backdrop of more services like Disney and Netflix looking to add. Advertising platforms, absolutely connected TV for the win. I think that really is the that's really this this quarter in a nutshell. You look at revenue up thirty five percent from a year ago, and they saw meaningful growth across really all verticals of spend that the company serves. But it really is it's video, it's connected TV that is really driving uh, this this train, so to speak. Right? I mean, you've got uh, video representing low forty percent of the overall business mix, but it continues to pick up more and more share of the overall business mix. And they did see a healthy 45% boost in operating expenses, but that really is investing in in the business and technology behind it. Uh, macro factors that the man that management called out specifically on the call really it goes back to this ad supported video on demand, right? It's this move towards ad supported streaming. And then this this idea that really it's sort of a new paradigm where Google isn't necessarily calling the shots when it comes to advertising. We've been really used to that narrative for a long time, uh, but but connected TV is changing that. This UID 2.0, which is a sort of that alternative to cookies, right? Offering up more personal experiences while protecting consumers' uh, privacy and our and our data uh, even more so. It, it really just puts Trade Desk in a very attractive position because they get to work with such a large uh, base of customers, right? I mean, they, they just have essentially the largest base of customers in this market. Um, they're calling for 28% revenue growth this quarter. Um, and I think something to keep in mind, too, there's some language in the call regarding Netflix, and, and, and while Netflix partnered up with Microsoft, ultimately, Green uh, noted, Jeff Green on the call noted that once they've done the work on the supply side in regard to Netflix, driving as much demand as possible towards those ad impressions will come next. So, Netflix is very well positioned to open their ad inventory on the demand side, which is the Trade Desk, and, and that's something that really could play out through Trade Desk's financials further down the road. All right, guys, we'll see you later in the show. Up next, how to avoid the mental traps that can keep you from investing. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Marsha Barnes is the founder and CEO of The Finance Bar, a company that helps women and couples achieve financial wellness. Motley Fool senior analyst Tim Byers caught up with Barnes recently to talk about how to avoid the mindset traps that can keep people from investing. You talk about, and we had a conversation before this interview, and I asked you a bit about some of the mindset traps 
that people get caught in when it comes to generating wealth of any kind. And that includes things like stock market investing, but may mm -hmm. include also responsible use of credit, how you think about banking, how you think about credit overall, things like that. So can we talk a little bit about some of the most common mindset traps that you run into in doing this work? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the most common is that oftentimes when you are, let's say you get your first job, Tim, or you're someone that you get promoted at work or you change careers. So your income is climbing. But many times the only thing that we're thinking about is, does this job help me to pay my bills? Yeah. There's not many, there's not emotionally, there's not this feeling of how does this job help me to generate wealth? You know, one of the mindset traps is that just be glad that you have a job and you're able to survive and pay your bills. How many times is there a conversation around when we go into different jobs? Like, how does this job help you build wealth? How will this job allow you to have more time with your family and friends? So that's the number one trap that we hear the most. A mindset trap is that just be glad that you have a job and you're surviving right now. Like the time that we're currently in, there's so much talk on the news about a recession. And for the average individual, you're just going to freeze up, you know, stop spending money. Don't spend on money, things that you like, definitely don't invest right now. So there's this scare tactic that we're, that's always drilled into our head. So it's really hard to move beyond this to just say that just like I pay my bills every month, I should also be paying myself to help me build wealth and to make life a little bit easier for me and my family. So that's one of the major uh, mindset traps, uh, Tim. And the other is, as I mentioned before, that investing is just not for me. You know, it's for the wealthy. It's for the rich person. It's, it's definitely not for me. I'm just a middle-class individual trying to pay my bills, helping my family out, my parents out, my grandparents out. And that's just, that's a nice to have. We often look at investing as a nice to have not a need to have in our life when absolutely it is something that we need to have. It's just really hard to get beyond what we've heard many years ago. Like you have to have this amount of money to invest. And now at a time where it may not take you much to jump into this. So that those are the biggest mindset traps that we really deal with at the finance bar. Let's talk about some of the things personally you have learned in doing this work because it's how many years has it been now since you founded the finance bar? Oh, it's been about almost seven years now. Okay. So it's been a while. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I imagine there's been some interesting lessons you've learned yes. in that time. So let's talk about that. Like what, what have you learned kind of working with people, helping them sort of get on firmer financial footing? Uh, I would say that the feeling really goes away, Tim. That has been the lesson for me is that financial wellness, financial therapy, uh, financial education, it never goes away. I view it as like working out, physically working out. Mm -hmm. Is that one thing that for money that's true is that it always follows us until the end of our lives. It does not go away. You know, our income can go up, our income can go down, and there's always something to learn. That is what I personally learned. Something else that I've learned, Tim, is that there are many ways to earn money that we haven't been taught. We've been taught, as I mentioned before, just get a job, be glad you have one, and that's it. We often don't think about the many ways to earn job, to earn money. The ways, if you want to invest and you still have a bit of fear about using your, your full-time check, well, what if there's like a part-time gig that you have and it's only devoted to wealth generation or building wealth? Mm. That's another thing that I've learned that until you get beyond those roadblocks, 
consider a different way to earn income that's specifically allotted for you to invest. There are just so many ways now. So th those are two of the biggest lessons uh, that I've learned, but also Tim, that, you know, building the finance part, 100% changed my lives. Having an attachment to people, learning about their financial journeys um, has been both fulfilling and it has been a learning experience for me. Because while we, and you and I have talked about this before, what comes easy for one person mentally does not come easy for the other. And that's something that I think is a learn, should be a learning lesson for all of us. What may be easy for you to do, do, Tim, may not be easy for me. So those are the three biggest lessons that I've learned along the way personally. Tell me if this is right, because you you drew a really interesting parallel earlier in this discussion, Marsha, about financial management or financial wellness as similar or maybe analogous to working out. Like you yeah. have, so I wonder, maybe we could talk through that a little bit because I am a 50 plus year old man. So my idea of working out is getting my <laughs> steps in. And if I do that, I'm good. But like, yeah. do you have like, maybe it's habits or like a routine, like when you teach some of this and, and I, I want you to kind of fit everything into it. Cause it seems like that's what you're saying is mm -hmm. you you want to have something that's holistic. That includes how you manage your checkbook, how you manage bills, how you manage your investing and you kind of group it all to, like talk us through some of that, maybe at a, at a slightly more detailed level. Sure. So you just mentioned it, Tom. You said that I'm a 50 plus year old man. And as long as I get my steps in, I'm good. But what you didn't say is that I'm a 50 year old man and I just won't do anything. You said, as long as I get my steps in. So financial management is very similar. Similar. If you are making sure that you do your budget, uh, Tim, if you're making sure that you're managing your debt, if you make sure that I'm just giving an example here that every month, I am committed to purchasing one stock. If I get to a certain point, like let's say I have seven stocks, seven different stocks, I am now committed to watching my portfolio. That is how you simplify financial management. Now, as you learn more, because as I mentioned, this is something that doesn't go away with money. As you learn more, maybe you want to get more detailed into, should I buy more? Or what does this investment look like for me? That is the goal. Oftentimes we make investing as like this faraway mystery land out in space somewhere. But if we simplify it, my budget to make sure that I have guardrails around my finances, a budget is not for dep deprivation. A budget is just to help you identify that I have everything blocked in. I'm not going off the road, Tim. My bills are paid. My needs are met. There are some wants in there that I have savings in there. I need to still think for the future. I'm purchasing one stock per month. That's it. And then I'm just going to keep learning. And the more that I, even if I learn more, maybe my method does not change until I feel like it needs to change. That is how it's very similar to working out. It's just a consistency and a rhythm but you don't stop. And that's the analogy that you mentioned earlier, as long as I get my steps in. So for me, as long as I purchase the stock per month, I'm good. I don't need to get like into fancy terms or like trying to build out this dictionary or encyclopedia to sound smart. I need to keep it simple because simple plus actionable and taking action gets us results.
It's not anything fancy. So that is the same, very similar comparison to physical activity and financial activity or financial management. Coming up after the break, Domino's stops selling pizza in the birthplace of pizza. Details next, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. I eat Aunt Pasta twice just because she is so nice, Angelina. Angelina, which is sad pizzeria. I keep soup and minestrone just to be with her alone, Angelina. Angelina, the waitress at the pizzeria. Tivoli bene. Angelina, I adore you. Tivoli bene. Angelina, I live for you. And passione. You have set my heart on fire. Listens to my song. I eat on the pasta twice just because she is so nice, Angelina. Angelina, the waitress at the pizzeria. If she'll be a my caramia, then I'll join in matrimony with the girl who serves spumoni, and Angelina will be mine. Of course my kid's in the right car seat. Well, I think he is. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio once again with Emily Flippin and Jason Moser. NVIDIA doesn't report earnings until late August, but earlier this week, the graphics chipmaker announced preliminary earnings showing second quarter revenue will be solidly lower than they originally projected. And not surprisingly, Jason, shares of NVIDIA down a bit this week. Yes, and to define solidly, we mean down 19% sequentially. <laughs> so, to put some numbers around that, it's not it's not that great of a look, but it is a risk that comes with a business like this when demand for a given sector slows. Down. We've talked a lot about companies that have pulled a lot of growth forward over the past couple of years. It seems like more and more, virtually every company did, right? Some more than others. But uh, gaming tailwinds of the past couple of years are normalizing a little bit. And that's ultimately what this all boils down to. Uh, it's the second biggest revenue driver behind data center for NVIDIA. And that is, uh, they're, they're, they're calling for revenue of $2.04 billion. That would be down 44% sequentially. The good thing for NVIDIA is that they are pursuing multiple large market opportunities beyond gaming. Uh, if you look at professional visualization, for example, yes, that's down 20% sequentially. But you look over a data center, which is the largest uh, part of the business, I mean, that revenue is cl- uh, set to come in at $3.81 billion, up just 1% sequentially, but 61% from the year ago. Uh, and then automotive as well, up 59% sequentially, up 45% from a year ago. Uh, 
Uh, and so, all things considered, to me, this is one of those situations. This isn't a long-term red flag. Unless you believe that gaming is in secular decline, and I don't, right? So to me, this stands out more as a timing thing than than a fundamental issue that that investors should expect to persist with the business. And oftentimes, those those represent decent opportunities. And Nvidia is a high quality business for sure. The business of Domino's Pizza has been fueled in large part by its international growth. Domino's is sold in more than 80 countries around the world. But this week, one of those countries got crossed off the list when the company announced it is closing its remaining stores in Italy. Emily? It's a pretty big swing for a U.S. pizza company to try and compete in the birthplace of pizza. I'm going to entitle this commentary in defense of Domino's because I see a lot of news outlets running with this story, laughing at Domino's Pizza, and I take that personally as a Domino's Pizza fan. Um, I also spent a semester in Florence, so I'm qualified for my opinion on Italian pizza. I'm asserting, and I will say I think that this story is being misrepresented. What killed Domino's in Italy was the pandemic. At the time, they were the only person who was really providing effective delivery service uh, prior to you know COVID. And now, once COVID has happened, all of these local mom and pop shops, the competition just increased exponentially, making it harder for them to compete for delivery pizza. But here's what I'll say about Domino's Pizza versus Italian Pizza. Two different markets. It's like saying that you can have you know one market for New York style pizza and Chicago style pizza. It's a different consumer who's ordering one or the other. So I'm convinced the person who is you know getting Domino's Pizza in Italy. I'm not quite sure what that person looks like, but I'm convinced that that person was probably not viewing the local mom and pop shop as a legitimate substitute, especially considering that nice garlicky buttery crust. <laughs> You can email our your questions to podcasts at fool.com or your comments on pizza. Podcasts at fool.com is the email address to hit. Question from Jonathan who writes, I've been looking at Intel recently as a buying opportunity. My problem is it's already one of my largest investments. It's currently about 7% in my 401k portfolio. Personally, I'd be willing to go up to 10%. It seems so cheap. With the current cost basis around $50 a share, I'm just worried I have blinders on as I love the long term prospects of the company with their new plants and the government investing in chips. Would love to hear your thoughts. Uh, Jonathan, thank you for the question. Jason, what do you think? Up to 10% for one chip company sounds like an awful lot. I will say that. I mean, Intel certainly has the opportunity to benefit from tailwinds in the segment as we try to invest more in our chip infrastructure here domestically. But remember that they aren't the only player in town, right? A lot of other companies out there that present a lot of competition in chips, while they're the lifeblood of virtually everything that we do, still a notoriously cyclical industry. So, I don't know, to me, it just feels like a pretty, a, that seems like a pretty big bet, perhaps unnecessarily. Yeah, I, I also think it's a big bet. I will say I, I like the chip industry, but diversification in a portfolio is key, as well as time horizon and risk tolerance. Um, so all of those should be taken into an investor's you know, portfolio. But I will say there's also a bit of interesting competition from AMD. So if somebody's really interested in expanding chip exposure, they really love the space, they're willing to wait out, and you know, I guess whether the cyclicality of the space, maybe consider adding AMD in a. Addition to a business like Intel for maximum exposure. 
Let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Jason Moser, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Uh, well, uh, Massimo, ticker MASI, uh, announced earnings this week as well. They're known uh, primarily for uh, healthcare technology and pulse oximetry. You're measuring the oxygen levels in the uh, blood. And side note, Chris, I saw Massimo equipment in, in, in the wild here recently, taking my daughters in for their annual checkups. I mean, I, I know our pediatrician probably thought I'm a total psycho nerding out at the fact <laughs> that they had that equipment, but there you go. Uh, it, it was a good quarter, consolidated revenue $565 million, with healthcare revenue growing. Uh, 17%, or actually 19% uh, in constant currency. Uh, the non healthcare revenue, the consumer side of the business, $208 million. And that really comes back to the Sound United deal. And that's, that's the biggest question mark, I think, with Massimo right now. It was a big deal they made there, um, ultimately trying to see exactly what they can do with it. They are making a foray into biosensing watches, smart style watches, um, which we'll learn about more as the year goes on. And some interesting behind the scenes litigation there with Apple as well regarding that, which could actually work out in Massimo's favor. Uh, but we'll learn more about that at their Investor Day in December. Dan, question about Massimo? So, I'm pretty sure we just talked about Massimo on the show, but I still always get excited, Chris, when I hear somebody talking about Massimo, because I think, erroneously, that they're talking about Massimo, the fashion brand? I don't know if it's fashion. <laughs> I just get excited about graphic tees. I mean, who doesn't, right? Who doesn't? I, I'm I'm on board with the graphic tees. If there was a rock solid, publicly traded company selling graphic tees, I, I'd give that a closer look. Emily Flippin, what are you looking at this week? I'm looking at Sonos this week. The ticker is S O N O, but it's on my radar this week for a bad reason. The stock is actually down 25% after reporting earnings, in which management had to dramatically cut its full year revenue guidance due to an anticipated pullback in consumer spending. They are, of course, the makers of at-home sound devices. They do compete a lot with businesses like Amazon and Google in terms of their core products. But I like their competitive positioning in terms of you know being built into the houses. They've constantly had an above-average product. Uh, they did lose their CFO to Axon this week, too, which is certainly um, hurting them as well. But I will say, they're trading at around 15 times operating income right now. And it's nothing to scoff at for a business that has managed to grow its top line every year since 2004. Dan, question about Sonos? Are people still watching TV? I mean, maybe it's because I have a five-month-old baby at home. <laughs> but the only like time I am ever, you know, absorbing entertainment is like late at night on my computer alone. <laughs> so I don't know about Sonos, man. Seems like a seems like a bad bet to me. Here's what I will say: I did just get back from Texas, where I visited my parents in their new townhome, which has the Sonos speakers built in, and they could not stop playing it. So there are differing opinions out there, Dan. Two very different businesses, Dan. You got a stock. Want to add to your watch list? Well, I wish I could add Massimo, the graphic tea maker, but I guess I got to pick between Massimo and Sonos. I don't know. And just because Jason saw it in the doctor's office, I'm going to go with Massimo. Boots on the ground research. There is no there substitute, people. All right, Emily Flip and Jason Moser, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, thanks Chris. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money Radio Show. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.